If you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Malachi, the last book in your Old Testament. If you're new and this is your first time here, this summer we've been in a series studying through these minor prophets. Um, if, if you don't know what the minor prophets are, they're the prophets that you've probably never read. They're the, they're the little ones. The, you got the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, but you, you've got all these itty-bitty ones stuck in the latter third of your Old Testament that you might have read at some point. But we've been studying through those, basically just taking one a week, doing an overview of it. And uh, we're in the last one of those, Malachi. Uh, if you, if you want to know what's upcoming, starting the same week that Shane and Shane are here on August the 25th, we're going to study, we're going to start a year long study through the book of Acts. Um, so, and do kind of not whole book, but like a whole chapter at that time. And even doing that, Acts is so long that it's going to take us all fall and spring more or less to get through it. Fun fact, uh, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Luke wrote Acts. Did you know that by like word count, right, uh, length and word count, Luke wrote more of our New Testament than anybody else? You might think Paul did because he wrote 13 letters or John because he wrote John Revelation letters, but no, actually Luke uh, contributed more by words to our New Testament than anybody else. But uh, studying Acts this fall and spring, but we're not there yet. We're in Malachi this morning. Thinking about the gospel according to Malachi. The gospel according to Malachi. That's been our aim in each of these minor prophets. Not just to understand each of them in their own right. And in their own day and time and circumstance and situation. But also to see how God spoke through each of them. To point us toward and to move us closer to Christ and the gospel. Even the most obscure Obadiah and little guys that you know whole book is like 25 verses they each point us forward to Christ and the gospel and why do we look at it this way not because they do but the New Testament teaches us to read the Old Testament that way I mean it's not just our idea that we want to do it literally if we want the Bible to help us help teach us how to study the Bible let scripture interpret scripture that's how scripture says we ought to study scripture Jesus twice in Luke 24 after his resurrection, told his disciples, hey, the Old Testament is about me. The things that you read in the, in the prophets, those are things concerning me. And Paul, when he's writing uh, to Rome and to the Galatians, says the gospel was promised beforehand in the, in the prophets. Or he told the Galatians, the gospel was actually preached beforehand in the Old Testament. Hundreds of years ahead of time. Why? Would God do it that way? We've rehearsed some of this if you've been here, but repetition is a good thing. Why would God do it this way? Well, a number of reasons, a lot of reasons. One reason that God would do it this way, like promise it beforehand, pro uh, preach it beforehand, prophesy it beforehand, give types and shadows before the actual thing actually comes. One reason he would do that is to make more certain the truth of the gospel when Jesus came. Because seeing that it had been anticipated for over a thousand years and hinted at and foreshadowed in so many different ways, not only through uh, things that were said, but people and places and institutions and events, all these things were pointing forward to it. And to see it was done in so many of this. So when Jesus came, it wasn't just somebody appearing out of nowhere saying things that nobody had any, people didn't have any idea what he was talking about. No, 
He was, he was claiming to fulfill centuries old um, prophecies or, or scriptures. And, uh, and, and they knew exactly what he was talking about. But God, God also, in, in a similar vein, he, he foreshadowed it in these ways so that, uh, just as we're saying, when Christ came, they would recognize him when he came and be held without excuse if they didn't. And when Jesus came, because he was saying things, they go, oh yeah, many of them saw and many of them heard and believed. And many of them didn't. But the very reason that many of them didn't is because, precisely because they did, knew, they, they did know what to expect when the Messiah came. They, just did, they didn't expect it to happen in the way that it happened. Right? They, they knew what to look for. But their problem was they expected everything to happen all at once. But Jesus came not only once, but he's coming again. So he did part of it at the first coming, the rest of it at the second coming. They didn't see that. A third reason that God would do it this way, foreshadow it, then fulfill it, is so for us, 2,000 years later, or Malachi, 2,500 years later, we, we would have still today all the intellectually honest reasons in the world to believe and trust this word and, 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 and believe in the Savior that it points us to, right? So that's been our aim through this series, and it's our aim one final time in Malachi. As we think about him, who was he? When did he live? What was his message? How does he point forward to Christ? Malachi comes at the end of your Old Testament because he was the final prophet from the Lord before Christ came. Uh, and there was a period of silence for over 400 years from the Lord after Malachi spoke. I mean, after God gave this word through Malachi, he went stone-cold silent for over 400 years before Christ came. Uh, and, and really until John the Baptist came to announce the arrival of the Christ. Jesus said of John, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So these words from Malachi are the last from the Lord to his people until the arrival of John the Baptist, with another word from the Lord. So Malachi is a, is a very important prophet for us, if only for that reason. He's the last guy on the scene for a long time. But he's also important because what he says is incredibly applicable still today, 2,500 years later. Uh, he's important because he, he points us to Christ. I hope you've had a chance to read it ahead of time. I forgot to remind you to do that. I hope you did. All right, so here we are in Malachi, the final word before Christ comes. It's not a terribly long book, four chapters. It's only 55 verses. But well, we still won't read it all at once. We'll read a, 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 lot, a lot of it uh, over the course of our time. But before we dive into the letter itself, or the book itself, let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, what we're about to study, we confess and, and confess our faith to you that this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. And we submit ourselves to it. Your word has proven itself to be true again and again and again and again. And as I said earlier, um, it, we, we can be intellectually honest as we submit ourselves to your word. And I ask, Father, that you would give us eyes to see the truth in Malachi this morning. Give us minds to understand the truth when presented to us. Give us hearts to embrace and love and care about and see as valuable the truth that we see in these pages. 
and give us wills to obey whatever it leads us to do. Use all eyes to see. Give me the help that I need to teach. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Malachi. Malachi doesn't tell us much about himself. Unlike what we saw the last two weeks in, in Haggai and Zechariah, who told us a good bit about themselves, and in fact told us like to the day, to the very day, when the word of the Lord came to them. For example, last week we know that what we saw Zechariah say, a lot of it happened on February the 19th, 519 B.C. I mean, they told us very specific. Right? We don't have that in Malachi, but tradition holds, and as you can tell by where it falls in your Bible, it's the last book of the Old Testament, that, that he lived in this later time in Israel's history, Judah's history, during the time after the exile in Babylon, during the same time period that Haggai and Zechariah were prophesying, and Ezra and Nehemiah were doing their work. The Persian Empire was, was ruling over Judah, but had allowed the Jews way back to go back home. They had been dispersed by the, by the Babylonians. When the Persians took over, they said, you could go back home, and they did. You can go home to rebuild Jerusalem. You could go home to start rebuilding a new temple because the Babylonians had destroyed Solomon's temple. Rebuild the city. Rebuild the, the temple. And during that time, God was sending them prophets with His Word through Haggai, through Zechariah, through Malachi to call the people to continue and finish the work of rebuilding the temple. But even more than that, we're going to see why in just a minute. More importantly than even rebuilding the temple is to return to Him in repentance and faith. Malachi was doing this just a few years after Haggai and Zechariah were on the scene, maybe as late as 450 B.C. The temple was in all likelihood finished. They had rebuilt it. It was done. Um, now it's just a matter of, are they going to return to the Lord in repentance and faith? If you read Malachi, you might have picked up on this. As we're going to think about it, a major theme... In Malachi, and I'll flesh out what I mean by this, a major theme is covenant. Covenant. God's covenant with them as His people, He their God, they His people, and their relationship to it. And it's going to be a reminder of God's faithfulness to that covenant. It's going to be a rebuke of their unfaithfulness to that covenant. And it's going to be a, a warning against those who are disobedient, but a word of hope to those who are, to the faithful, that God will nevertheless fulfill and keep His end of the bargain, the end of the covenant, and send a Savior, right? So that's how I want us to arrange this book. From, from the opening words of the book in chapter 1, we're going to think about the covenant-making God. The covenant-making God. And God's goodness and faithfulness to them, that's verses 2 through 5 of chapter 1. But the message of most of the book beginning in chapter 1, verse 6, all the way through chapter 2, and in the middle of chapter 3 is, unfortunately, a rebuke against them for being a covenant-breaking people. From the priests themselves on down to the people. How unfaithful they have been and continued to be, even though they had come back by God's gracious hand out of exile for the very reason that they were disobedient. And finally, in two important passages at the beginning of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, we will see the covenant-fulfilling Savior. These are the last words. These would have been the last words they had from the Lord for over four centuries. 
before Jesus came. So let's dive in and think first about the covenant-making God. So Malachi introduces himself in verse 1 of chapter 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And that's the only direct information he gives us about himself, his name. His name is Malachi. But this book, that's okay, because this book is not about Malachi. Jonah was about Jonah in a lot of ways. Malachi is not about Malachi. And it's so obvious when you read the book. It's obvious in this way. There are only 55 verses in the whole book. 47 of them. 47 of the 55 verses are direct words from the Lord in first person to the people. Right? And, uh, and that begins in verse 2. And, and so let's look at verses 2 through 5. Here are the first words from the Lord in Malachi. Uh, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, and remember that Edom are Esau's descendants. If Edom says, we are shattered, we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The very first words of the Lord to the people through the prophet Malachi are, I have loved you. And that's, that's covenant language. That's, that's the, 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 two, the twin essences uh, of a covenant are love and promise. That's what we see in a, in, a, in, a, in a marriage covenant, love and promise. When he says, I have loved you, that's covenantal language. I've loved you. And how do they answer back? How have you loved us? This whole book is a, is a series of question and answers. There's ten of them through the book. God says one thing, they answer back with a question. But this opening question and, and statement and their question response tells you a lot about the Lord and a lot about His people at the time. Because he tell, What does He tell them? I've loved you. And just think about their response. How have you loved us? Man, really? I've loved you, says the Lord. How have you loved us? What's his answer? God's answer back is, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. What's he saying? Okay. So Jacob and Esau, we've come across them before in these minor prophets. He's drawing their, by saying, when talk, by talking about Jacob and Esau, he's drawing their minds back to the patriarchs, right, of Genesis. And ultimately, I'm, I'm going to argue that he's drawing their minds back to the covenant with Abraham because it's this, it's this covenant that God made originally with Abraham. That covenant was then promised to his son Isaac, which was then promised to his son Jacob, okay, so that's what we're going back to. And before we get to why he highlights Jacob and Esau here, I want to I think for just a second about the covenant behind it that's being highlighted here, this covenant with Abraham. 
Remember in Genesis 12, that's when, when God first called Abraham, Abram at the time, leave your, leave your country, go to the land that I will show you and I will bless you, I will multiply you, you'll be the father of many nations. Basically, I'm going to be your God and you and your descendants are going to be my people. And it wasn't based on anything in Abraham. Abraham was not seeking after the Lord, the Lord sought after him. Abraham was living among a pagan people. Right? You can assume some things about him then. And the Lord went seeking after him and made a covenant with him before he took the first step toward the Lord. Made a covenant with him. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. Not based on anything in Abram. Not, not on anything he had done or not done, but on God's un, just unconditional love and unconditional favor. In fact, later on, uh, so he, God makes this covenant with Abraham and with his descendants, and his descendants become the nation of Israel, right? When God makes the next covenant with them after Abraham, it's the covenant through Moses. And when, Mo, when God is making that covenant with Moses, with the people through Moses, Moses reflects on this covenant with Abraham. And here, listen to how Moses himself describes this covenant with Abraham in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Moses tells the people, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Don't let that just wash over you. You're His treasured possession. Out of all the people who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. Do you follow that? Think through the logic of that again. The Lord chose them to be His treasured possession. And later, that's that same idea, Him choosing to be a, His people, is is also described in verse 7 as um, he set his love on them. And, and what, what this passage is getting at is, why did God do that? Why did he choose them to be his treasured possession? Why did he set his love on them as his people? And here's the answer it gives. One, it's not because you were a great mighty nation. It's not because you were more in number. In fact, you were tiny, insignificant, vulnerable. So you're the fewest of all the people, okay? So if not that, if it's not because of anything in us that, it's not because of you saw something in us that made you love us, made you choose us, why then did you do it? Answer given in this passage is, the Lord loves you because, last words, the, because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. The Lord loves you. Why did he set his love on them? Because he loved them. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. And to us, that sounds weird, but the point is, it, it's not based on anything in you. It's based entirely on the unchanging goodness of God toward you, right? You didn't, you didn't do anything to bring it upon yourself, therefore you can't do anything, and God won't let you do anything that will squander it for yourself once you have it, right? Why have I loved you? Because I loved you. There's no deeper reason given than that. And that's, that's uh, it's completely rooted in God's goodness. And that's the, that's the idea that's rooted behind this covenant with Abraham. 
And that's the promise. Abraham, you haven't done anything. You're a pagan in a pagan land, but I love you. And I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless, you, bless your descendants. You're going to, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And that promise was passed on to his son Isaac. And then that promise was passed on to his son Jacob. But the interesting thing about Jacob is that he had a brother, Esau. And not only was Esau a brother, he was a twin. You can almost see where God is going with this thing. A twin. And if it came down to how do you, how do you decide which of these two guys gets the promise, I mean, which one deserves it? Neither of them. Neither of them. There's nothing, there's not a thing outwardly that distinguishes them. They're twins. Then in fact, Paul says in Romans 9, Paul says that God, God passed this, this promise down to Jacob instead of Esau. Paul says in Romans 9 that he did that before they were even born and before either one of them had done anything good or evil. So again, totally based on God's kindness. Totally based on God's favor. Not on who deserves it. And God opens Malachi, reminding them that He chose them I have loved you. I've loved you. Not Esau. Not Esau's descendants. The Edomites. We talked about the Edomites and Obadiah. He had had he said, had I chose Esau over Jacob back then, your life would be totally different. Right? How have I loved you? First of all, I chose you. I just I chose you. Even when it came down to a set of twins, I chose your people. And second of all, look at the Edomites, he says in these verses. If they, if they say, we'll rebuild, I'll tear it down. Look at their life apart from the favor of God. How have you loved us? How have you loved us? Paul, again, he reflects on this in Romans 9. And he says, he thinks, and, and Paul thinking, let, let Paul answer for them. They, they, they are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever and amen. How have you loved us? You have to be willfully blind. Maybe in Malachi's day, maybe they were, maybe they just, maybe they were just like us and were very short-sighted. Maybe they were just like us and all they had in view was what's going on right now and what's happening to me right now. And all they had in view was maybe the last hundred years, which to them seemed like a long time. First of all, under the Babylonians scattered us, destroyed Solomon's temple, ruined our city separate us all over the kingdom. And then now, now the Persians let us come home, but they're still ruling over us, God. And they, they're probably asking, so where's, where's God's goodness in all that? Why were they suffering those things? Because of their own disobedience. And God graciously forewarned them back in Moses' day, if you disobey, this is going to happen. And they disobeyed, and it happened. 
God could have just given them up, just flat given them up. But he didn't. Why? I've loved you. It's a gracious covenant. He didn't. He brought them back out of exile. He sent them his words through his prophets. And the first word through the prophet Malachi is, I've loved you. In other words, he opens this book saying, God is saying, I haven't moved. You have. That's what he's saying. How have, God hasn't gone anywhere. God's a covenant-making God, covenant-keeping God. How have they responded to his love for them? They, like us, are a covenant-breaking people. This is the bulk of the book. All the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and half of chapter 3 is the Lord laying out for them through Malachi how even though he's graciously brought them back out of exile, they're still trying to walk away from him. And they're still disregarding them, him in their hearts. And it's manifesting itself in their actions toward them. How so? Well, he starts with the priests. I mean, he, start, he, he starts with the priests. And he addresses the priests beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 9. And look at chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despised my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Of course, they don't believe that they have. They're just like me. But notice, take particular notice how God describes himself to them as their father and as their master. Right? You see that? As a son honors his father, a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear? Father, master. That's not just poetic. It's not just poetic. He, again, he's bringing their minds back to covenants that God had made with them that they're living under. And, and so think about those, father and master. Father is, is echoing back, again, that, that, that uh, covenant that God made with Abraham, that first covenant that I've already talked about. Why would father relate to that one? Because it was, it was through that covenant with Abraham that the nation was born. His descendants came from that covenant. Nation was born as, uh, as a nation because of that covenant with Abraham. So in a sense, God was their father in that kind of sense. He's God the Father eternally, but he's their father in time and space and history that, and through that covenant. But he's also their master by virtue of the next covenant, the covenant with Moses. Because God, the mighty warrior king, brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And what did he do? He gave them his law to keep. He's a loving master, but he's a master. And he tells even the priests in Malachi's day, you don't honor me as your father and you don't fear me as your master. And he, and he, and he lays out all the reasons how in the next chapter worth of words. And he points to their sacrifices that they offer him as exhibit A of their love or lack of love and fear in their hearts toward him. Look at verses 7 and 8. By offering polluted food upon my altar but you say how have we polluted you 
by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals, you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is it not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you honor, says the Lord of hosts? Man, that hits me hard. He says, when they bring animals for sacrifices, they totally disregard the law. The law said bring a spotless lamb, spotless sacrifices, not blemished. They're bringing blind and lame animals. And God says, would you even, give, would you even bring that to your Persian governor? But you bring it to me. Let that sink in. In your own life and mine. Let that sink in. What, what do we give to the Lord compared to what we give each other? What do we compare the excellence of your time and affection and diligence and devotion that we give to other things compared to what we give to the Lord? Now, we can't point our fingers at these priests. We are those priests. He elaborates further in verses 13 and 14. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? Says the Lord. Cursed be the cheat. The cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it. And yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. They did it. I've done that. And he rebukes them for it and reminds them that, that while, while they have neither, he, he, I like how in the chapter 1 he reminds them, while they have neither honored nor feared him, he, he doesn't need it from them. He had already told them back in verse 5, look back in verse 5 of chapter 1, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So he isn't just the God of Israel. He's the God of the universe. And then he tells them at the end of verse 11, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And he says at the end of verse 14, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Put those two verses together. You don't honor me as your father. You don't fear me as your master. He, he basically says in verse 11, I will have my honor. And he says in verse 15, I will have my fear, even if it's not from you. John the Baptist later would say, if you don't praise him, the stones will rise up and praise him. Right? He commands us to praise him. He commands them to praise him. He commands them to honor him. I remember reading um, C.S. Lewis on... On the Psalms, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book on reflections on the Psalms. He picked out some Psalms. I recommend that to you. And there's one part in that book where he says, when he, before he became a believer, he was always, he always bristled at this idea that God would command us to praise him. You know? Like, command us to praise him. Command us to rejoice in Him. 
Like to him, as an unbeliever, he felt like, if you're really God, you shouldn't have to tell me to do that. Like, what kind of, what kind of pettiness is that? Until, until he became a believer, and he thought back on that same reality, and he said, he, he, he compared it to laughing at something really funny. And he said, when, when you find something funny, the, the spontaneous laughter in you completes the joy of that funny thing, right? And it's, it's, it's that command, that it's the overflowing praise of the Lord is the completion of the joy that we have when we see his glory. And so it's not a petty thing. It's not a petty thing when God says, honor me. It's an invitation to laugh when it's funny and to praise when it's beautiful, right? So he, he's commanding them to, for our own good, for our own deep joy and our own deep satisfaction. As Jesus put it, so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. Yeah, so in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he warns the priests in, against continuing in this state of apathy. And continuing in this disdain for the Lord, he says in verses 2 and 5, So uh, you shall know that I have sent this command to you and that my covenant with Levi may stand. Says the Lord of hosts, my covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I give to him, it was a covenant of fear and he feared me. We don't have a lot of time. In fact, we, we're going to go over time this morning, so just buckle up. We don't, we don't have a lot of time to go behind everything that's there, but that's probably a, an allusion to Numbers chapter 25. You can jot that down and look at it later. In Numbers 25, we have a, a story in Israel's history where the people were worshiping other idols. It was causing them to, to go into sexual immorality. And one of the priests, I won't get too graphic here, his name was Phineas. Some people brought some sexual immorality right into the middle of the camp, and Phineas just took care of business. Took a spear and went, yeah. Anyway, uh, and the Lord says, the Lord says of Phineas in, in Numbers 25, verse 12 and 13, Therefore say, behold, I give to him, Phineas, this priest, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. And I think that may be what Malachi is, is alluding to in Malachi 2, verses 4 and 5, about the priest in his day. He's holding up Phineas. Phineas was jealous for my name. Phineas was jealous for my glory. He loved me. Phineas gave me fear and glory. And then his priest in Malachi's day, he says in verse 7, the lips of the priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction for his mouth. For he's the master of the Lord of hosts. But they've broken the covenant. They've broken the covenant. And not only them, but the people have followed them. We don't we really don't have time to go through so much of this, but he, he mentions two basic things, highlights two basic things about the people who have followed the waywardness of the priests. Uh, two, in verses 10 through 12, he, he points out that they're marrying, they, just like the generations before them, they're marrying people from other cultures who are leading them into idolatry and worship of other gods. In verses 13 through 16, He's saying even in all the marriages, whether you're married to a, 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 someone of your own people or a foreigner, you're unfaithful in your marriage vows. You're unfaithful to each other. You're divorcing each other. Verse 15 says, So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. 
God ordained the covenant of marriage to be a picture of, of Christ in the church. And so we're, we're, we're misrepresenting Him when we are unfaithful to each other in our marriage vows. Then he talks about in chapter 3, they, they have not honored Him with their wealth. He tells them in verse 10, Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there's no more need. You may have heard somebody preach a sermon on this as regards tithing, but notice what he's doing here. He's not commanding them to tithe out of sheer law, definitely not out of his need. The Lord doesn't need the money. Notice he doesn't say, give the full tithes. He says, bring them. Right? The difference, it shows that it already belongs to him. Right? It's not theirs to give. It is only theirs to bring. How are they going to honor the Lord with their wealth when, that he's allowed them to steward? Bring it. Bring, bring, bring me a tenth of it. And trust me with the rest. It's not weird at all. In verse 14 they say, basically it's, it's vain to serve God. They didn't see any point in it. What does that illustrate? They didn't really know him. They didn't, they didn't know him at all. So, so far the book of Malachi has been just a present contrast between a covenant-making God and a covenant-breaking people. Between a holy God and an arrogant people. They were that people... We are that people. So the contrast isn't just between God and them, it's between God and us. There's a beautiful and sobering resolution to this given in two major passages in the book, and we'll end with this. They, they resolve, but essentially reinforce what we've seen, that God is not only a covenant-making God, but a covenant-keeping God. And He's gracious beyond description to our continuing to be a covenant-breaking people. You know, the last important aspect uh, in Malachi and the before God went stone-cold silent for over 400 years is how he's a covenant-fulfilling Savior. The two passages that I mentioned here that talk about the coming Savior are probably the most well-known passages in the book because they point so clearly forward to Christ and even to John the Baptist, who was his forerunner, on top of the fact that they're mentioned in Handel's Messiah. <laughs> Why? Because they're so clear. They talk of a, co a coming day, the day of the Lord. This would actually take place in two stages. Malachi is unique because he doesn't just prophesy the coming of Christ, but also John the Baptist, who would, who would make the way for Christ. Look at the first verse of chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That verse prophesies both the coming of Christ and John the Baptist. When he says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke quote that and say, that's John the Baptist. That part. He is the messenger who's preparing the way when he came. And he's described, John the Baptist is described again in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children of their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Again, these verses are quoted in the New Testament of John the Baptist. And he says, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Is Elijah coming? Now imagine those are the last words from God for over 400 years. Elijah's coming. I'm going to send you Elijah. And then God goes stone cold silent for over 400 years. And all of a sudden, there shows up on the scene a man that's described in Mark chapter 1 as being clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. That was weird for the first century. 
But if you read 1 Kings chapter 1, it's, it sounds just like Elijah. Funny thing is, this guy that's doing this is doing the exact, the very things that Malachi said this Elijah would come and do. And all the more electrifying to them because what, what was he doing? Preparing the way for the Lord. And Malachi 3.1 also says of this, not only the messenger coming, but the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Last thing, and I, we'll, we'll, we'll try to wrap it up here. The Lord will come to his temple. When Solomon's temple was built, when they dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, this is what we read. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You essentially read the same thing about the tabernacle before that. The cloud of the glory of God overwhelmed the place. It is never said of the second temple that they built. When they rebuilt the temple under Haggai and Zechariah, Scripture never says of the second temple that they rebuilt that that happened, that the glory ever filled the, that temple like it had done Solomon's temple and the tabernacle before that. Why? Because it was a message being sent that the days of the temple were fading out for the more permanent reality coming. And when Jesus comes, right, the Apostle John described Jesus coming in this way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt could be translated tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Jesus is the temple. When the glory didn't, didn't fill that second temple because it wasn't the lasting reality. The glory would return when Jesus, the true temple, came. He, the tabernacle had come in the flesh. The temple had come in the flesh. And Malachi promises in Malachi 4.2, you who fear my name, for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Hark the herald angels sing. So the covenant-fulfilling Savior will save everyone who honors and fears Him, trusts in His saving work, and follows Him. That's the promise of chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. But for those who don't, there's a fearful judgment coming. So we end where we began. We end Malachi, we end this series where we began. God tells them through the prophet, I have loved you. I have loved you. And you say, how have you loved us? Malachi and all the minor prophets before him say, how have you loved us? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him would not perish and have everlasting life. And that's the gospel according to Malachi. Let's pray.